Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Peace to You, Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 1st, 2011. In a coincidence of the calendar, Sunday, May the 1st marks two important anniversaries. Both of them are disturbing reminders of humanity's will to war that is utterly at odds with the story of Jesus. This Sunday, May the 1st, the world commemorates the genocide of six million Jews by observing Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. In 1951, Israel's parliament designated the 27th day of Nisan as Holocaust Day a day to remember the Jews who perished and those who heroically resisted. Then, in 1959, the Parliament enacted Holocaust Day as formal law. And since 1989, the Neset, in cooperation with Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Martyrs and Heroes Remembrance Authority, performs a ceremony called Everyone Has a Name, in which the names of all the Holocaust victims are read aloud. The word genocide was coined by the eccentric and brilliant Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jew who almost single-handedly thrusts the issue onto the world stage. On October 16, 1950, after 17 years of Lemkin's tireless labor, the United Nations finally ratified the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. The United States signed 36 years later, on February the 11th, 1986, long after 97 nations had already ratified the convention. When Lincoln died of a heart attack at the age of 59 on August the 28th, 1959, he was penniless. But before he died, he had broadened the notion of genocide beyond the extermination of six million Jews. Lemkin expanded genocide to include the attempted destruction not only of ethnic and religious groups, but of political ones as well. And he thought that the term should also encompass systematic cultural destruction. And so on Holocaust Remembrance Day, we rightly honor the memory not only of the six million Jews who were systematically exterminated by the Nazis in 35 countries, but also the additional three to four million people whom the Nazis deemed undesirable and inferior enemies of the state. Gays, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, Soviet prisoners of war, Slavic people, the physically and mentally disabled, and political dissidents of every sort. Yom HaShoah also reminds us of other mass murders in just the last hundred years. A million or more Armenians under the Turks. Two million Cambodians under the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. Kurds under Saddam Hussein. Muslims, Croats, and ethnic Albanians under the Serbs. Thirty million Chinese under Mao. Tens of millions under Soviet atheism. Nearly a million ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus by extremist Hutus in Rwanda 
And in Darfur, the Fur, Zaghawa, and Masalite peoples by the Janjaweed, who were supported by Sudan's government. The most underreported war relative to its death toll has been the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo, former Zaire, which conflict has involved at least eight other African nations. Since 1998, when the war started, about three million people have perished. With a population of about 50 million Congolese from about 200 different ethnic groups, that's 6% of the population. A comparative figure for the United States would be about 18 million deaths. Millions more Congolese have been displaced or fled to countries that are barely more stable. And even though this war is officially over, quotation marks, after numerous peace accords, the economic, political, cultural, social, and human costs are mind-numbing. In his 2009 book, Worse Than War, Daniel Goldhagen describes how upwards of 175 million people have been what he calls eliminated in the last century. These people came from all regions of the world and from all social, economic, and political groups. The vast majority of them were killed in their own countries by their fellow citizens, by willing and non-coerced murderers, and almost never with any substantial dissent. By Goldhagen's count, mass murder has deeply scarred countries that are home to 4.4 billion people which is to say two-thirds of the world's population. Civilian deaths and injuries outnumber military ones by a factor of nine to one. And so, says Goldhagen, eliminationism is thus worse than war. May the 1st is also the eighth anniversary of the day in 2003 when George Bush landed on the deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln in a bomber jacket and boasted that after six weeks of war, America's major combat operations in Iraq were over. The incident remains an iconic reminder of the hubris and folly of American militarism. And come this fall, the United States will have been at war in Afghanistan for 10 years, its longest war. The United States maintains over a half million soldiers and dependents on a thousand bases in 175 countries and another thousand bases here at home. In 2009, the United States accounted for 43% of the world's military expenditures. Many analysts have thus commented on the permanent war economy required to, what su required to sustain what amounts to perpetual war. Some people might argue whether American militarism is politically imprudent, economically profligate, and inherently hypocritical for preaching democracy while practicing imperialism and supporting dictators. But for Christians, this militarism ought to be morally abhorrent. John's Gospel for this week describes how the followers of Jesus huddled in fear behind locked doors. Jesus then appeared among them and said, Peace be with you. He repeats this benediction of peace 
three times in John chapter 20, 19, 21, and 26. And, and then blesses them with the Holy Spirit of comfort and encouragement. He then commissions his followers. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The followers of Jesus thus proclaim God's peace to all the world, insisting that the creator of the cosmos wishes human health and wholeness for every single person. Christian prayers for peace are both a pastoral and a political act. We pray for soldiers and civilians alike, for governments and diplomats, for peacemakers and treaty negotiators, for Iraqis and Congolese, Palestinians and Chechnyans, as much as for Americans. We take our prayer from the psalmist for this week in chapter 16, verse 1. Lord, keep us safe. Somehow, some way, save us from our warring impulses. Please, Lord, keep us safe. And for further reflection, consider the peace prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light and where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find. And it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. Amen. For books this week, I review Anne Lamott, the title Imperfect Birds, New York Riverhead Books, 2010, 278 pages. Anne Lamott takes the title for her latest novel from the 13th century Persian poet Rumi, who once said, Each has to enter the nest made by the other imperfect bird. Lamott's considerable following of readers knows that this is what she does best. Describe our deeply imperfect lives with a mix of disarming candor, autobiographical insight, sardonic wit, and mystery of divine grace. The Ferguson family is her latest iteration of this familiar formula that has characterized her works of both fiction and memoir. Elizabeth and James are 10 years into a second marriage and deep into all the angst that accumulates around midlife. James is a writer for NPR who's enjoying some success and also a stepfather to their daughter, Rosie. As such, he has more emotional distance from the family drama than Elizabeth, who's a stay-at-home mom and recovering alcoholic on antidepressants for anxiety and rage. 
Their daughter Rosie is a senior in high school, a tennis prodigy and straight-A student who has them wrapped around the emotional axle with her drift into drugs, sex, unhealthy relationships, lying, and all-purpose teenage alienation. Rosie and her mother Elizabeth epitomize codependent and enabling behaviors. Best friends Lank and Ray, a lay minister, along with a hip Marin County pastor named Anthony, who's half Haitian and wears dashikis, help the Fergusons negotiate these stormy waters. Perhaps this sounds like a melodramatic soap opera, overwrought and overwritten, but it works because it mirrors what many of us live. I was a little unsatisfied with how Lamotte ended her story, which is not really an end at all, and not one with any surprises. But then again, that's also true of life. Much of life is getting out of bed, getting dressed, and showing up. Lamont hits the right notes when she reminds us of the divine grace enveloping our human messiness. It's like being pre-approved, she says. Or as Ray reminds the teenager Rosie, you are loved because God loves, period. God loves you in everyone not because you believe certain things, but because you are a mess and lonely and his or her child. God loves you no matter how crazy you feel on the inside, no matter what a fake you are. Always, even in your current condition, even before coffee. That's the good news, no matter how horrible or banal or bad news. The title of the book is Imperfect Birds by Anne Lamott, a novel. For film this week, I review a movie from Greece. The title is Dogtooth from the year 2009. I can't recommend this film because of its graphic depictions of incest, nor am I necessarily glad that I watched it. Nonetheless, it's been nominated for an Academy Award as Best Foreign Film, and at, Cannes, and at the Cannes Film Festival in 2009, it won the prize for a certain regard. Within the walls of their isolated estate in rural Greece, a father exercises total mind control over his three teenage children, a son and two daughters. In fact, he's the only one allowed to leave the compound, in vocabulary lessons, the children learn, for example, that the sea is a leather chair. Although teenagers, they play games to earn stickers. They think planes fall from the sky. They're taught to bark like a dog at a kitten who, quote, is the most dangerous animal on the planet, end quote. There are hints that a tragic accident led to their sick seclusion, but the horrible pathologies are nevertheless treated as normal. If you stay inside, says the father, you will be protected. In many frames, the bodies of the characters are cropped, and in fact, we never learn anyone's name, which is to say that these people have lost their human identities. The movie is in Greek with English subtitles. Once again, the name of the film, Dogtooth. 
And for poetry this week, we've posted perhaps my all-time favorite poem. The title is called The Revival by Henry Vaughan, a Welsh poet and physician who lived from 1621 to 1695. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops in dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves and express joys reply unto the turtle's voice. And here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. The poem is called The Revival by Henry Vaughan. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 1st, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.